What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Internally, the nucleus of our company, the ethos of our company has always been very clear. And early on, I began writing company principles for us. And then I sent that out to all of our team members, not just leaders, to all of our team members at that time. And this was years, years ago. And I asked for them to tell me which of the company principles that I had laid out should stay and to add the ones that they thought should be there. And when it was all said and done, I think only maybe two or three of the original 10 that I came up with remained. And the, the rest of it was from our, our team members. So our guiding principles have been very clear from early on. And our very first one is we do it with excellence or we don't do it at all. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode Build a Culture of Confidence. One of the most remarkable stories from our best in business list this past winter was about a woman who's a serial entrepreneur with an all-woman leadership team. When the pandemic hit, she was just three years into business, building a whiskey brand, and already had whiskey for sale in 50 states and was undergoing a major $50 million project to build a new distillery with a tasting room, concert space, and restaurants while simultaneously providing aid in the form of PPE to frontline workers across the country. Now, these are not even the most remarkable things about Fawn Weaver or her company, Uncle Nearest. Fawn had been an executive throughout her career and a public relations firm founder. But when she encountered the story of America's first Black master distiller, Nearest Green, the man who taught Jack Daniel how to make and blend whiskey. Her goal wasn't initially to build a business. It was just to bring back Green's remarkable legacy. Now she's done both. But as Fawn told me, she's never been one to just go with the flow. Well, I left home at 15. So wow. that's, <laughs> so I decided to start my journey at 15. I started my first company at 18. I had 10 employees before I was 19. And so it is, it's, it's interesting because when I look back at it, that the, the, the company was few entertainment, which is my initials F E W. And how simple did we make our company names when you're like 18 Few entertainment. And the irony is, is that it was a PR and special events firm and my entire life, every element of what I've done, whether it is, is investing, whether it's starting a brand, whether it's writing the New York times bestselling book, I've used all of those elements from my first company when I was 18. And what were those elements? How did you start it up? And what was your goal? Yeah, ironically, I did a, I guess you would call it an internship. I didn't get paid for it. So that's what it would be for a PR firm. Now, mind you, I was very young. 
and it was one of the uh, top PR firms in Los Angeles. And I was working on two specific accounts and I had these ideas and decided to execute upon the ideas. And the PR firm just sort of gave me free reign because they looked at it and said, huh, we wouldn't have thought of this. So run with it. And about midway through me planning the, the events and the PR element of it, both of those companies said, if you ever decide to start your own PR firm, we'll come with you. And, and they were big clients. And, and you were what, 18 years old? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so I began representing, but, but the, the thing is, this is the funny thing about black women, because we, we have this saying that black don't crack it. Nobody will look at me and say, oh, she's 45. That just, it just, but we mature very early in our looks. And then we somehow stay frozen in time for about 30 years. <laughs> so, so if you look back at photos of me when I was 18, it's not too dissimilar to how I look now. <laughs> and so in my, my maturity level was very similar. And so I think that because of that, age just never came up as a question. And I certainly didn't bring it up. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. Cause when I was 18, I looked like I was 12 and acted like I was 40. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the way it sounds to me is you're, you're obviously so charismatic and, and people were drawn to you and, and when leadership is personality based, um, oftentimes that's, that's, um, it works, right. But it is so much pressure then to keep that up, um, and to always be there for everyone. Is that something you've felt over the years? Is that a, is that a pressure that, no. um, no, just, no. it's just no, so because, natural because I am who I am. And I don't apologize for who I am. And I attract team members who are going to fit well with who I am innately. I think for a lot of leaders, for whatever reason, they hire people and then they spend time trying to change themselves. And for me, yes, you want to just naturally improve in life. You want to become a better human being. But there's a reason that you are the leader and you're the one signing the paychecks. So the idea that the personality of a leader should mirror the personalities of those that they are leading doesn't make any sense. So I've never tried to change who I was. I think a lot of the pressure that leaders feel when it comes to, especially you know, leaders that people are, are following them because they're they're infectious or they're passionate and they're and they're driven and they're following that. A, a lot of them look at some of those elements of being driven, for instance and begin looking at the flaws and focusing on the flaws. I'm a big believer that whatever you focus on gets stronger. And so I don't focus on the flaws in my leadership. I truly do not. I focus on the strengths. And because of that, and I'm able to just be authentic, I tell people before I hire them very clearly, and I have other team members talk to them and and say, this is my personality. This is who I am. Is this the kind of person that you want to work for? Because I'm not, as a leader, going to be for everybody, right? So I make that really clear. And my company has, I would venture to say, the lowest turnover rate in the spirits industry. We've grown, I think, the stat is something like 2,900% since the beginning in terms of our workforce. And in the first three and a half years, we didn't have one person resign. And then more recently, the the bigger companies are starting to poach, but even then our turnover rate is lower than 3%. So I do think that there is something to be said about a leader leading authentically, not from books they've read, not from from, whatever is the newest TED talk, but literally leading 
from their innate abilities and then the team around them making them better. That's fantastic. And I want to talk to you more about, about how you've structured your new company and how um, the, the kind of uh, great choices you've made in terms of hiring. But first, tell me, tell me about um, the growth of the PR firm and where that ultimately ended up, because I want to talk to you about the break you took from entrepreneurship as yeah. well. But let, let's, hear, let's hear what happened with your PR firm first. Yeah, it's interesting. So Few Entertainment, I began that in 1994. And I took that. Now, even though I hired very quickly, there was no way for my company to sustain that. So at 18, I knew how to lead, but I did not know how to budget. And there is a difference. <laughs> and so that had to really be pared down uh, pretty early on into it. So it was when you're that young, you're really, it's important to you what the title is and how big the office is and how people perceive you. As you get older and more mature, I think that that begins to disappear. At least it has for me. But at that time, those that perception was very important. And so there was no way I was going to be able to sustain that. And as I was, I wouldn't call it laying off, but as 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 the company began to have to scale back, there was a, a, a celebrity chef in Los Angeles named Jerry Garvin. And at the time, he had a large celebrity following, but he himself wasn't yet a celebrity chef. And I think he was at, uh, can't remember where he was, but... Keyshawn Johnson was starting this restaurant called Rain in Beverly Hills. He had put a million dollars behind this build-out, beautiful three-story restaurant right in the heart of Beverly Hills. And I got a call from Jerry, who had been referred to me by one of my team members. And, and he said, hey, you know, we're doing this, this, this launch and we want to have a really big party. And so-and-so said that you would be the one to, to plan it, to publicize it. And at the time, because I was paring everything down, I just didn't have the bandwidth. And so I told him, listen, I can't do this, but what I will do is come and do a walkthrough of the restaurant and I will tell you what I think you need. And then you can find the person to do it. And so that's what I did. And, and then I began taking clients to his restaurant when it opened. And about, I'd probably say about a year into it, you know, celebrity owned uh, athlete owned restaurants and celebrity owned restaurants sometimes can be very interesting where you have the personality of that celebrity that's never done it before. And so they, they do some very interesting things uh, and that was going on. And, and I could see that that was going to blow up at some point and not a good way. And so once it happened, uh, Jerry reached into me and and he said, hey, I do not want to work for anyone again. I want to have my own thing. And so it's almost like going back to at the beginning with the PR firm where I was coming up with ideas that may not have been mainstream or may not have been conventional, but it was something that was different and unique. And I said, listen, you've got a celebrity following already. So just transition to a full catering business where you cater for all of the celebrities and let me build out your business plan, your restaurant plan, your branding, your PR piece of it, what that would look like. And by the way, I'll raise all the money for you. And so I put together his, his business plan and, and through the branding process went from Jerry uh, Garvin to G Garvin, uh, which is what he is now known as it, to the, to the food network world. Right. right. And then uh, we launched G Garvin's in LA and uh, it's interesting because it was built on earned media immediately out of the gate. It was top 10 uh, new restaurants in LA and Los Angeles magazine. That's hard to do because there's a lot of restaurants opening up every year. 
in Los Angeles. And it just press after press hit after press hit, so much so that there was a 45-minute wait, even if you had a reservation, and it took you a month to get a reservation. So it, it literally just took off, off the ground. And I did that. I managed the business side of that restaurant because I brought in the investors. So at that point, I needed to protect their investment. And for about four years, so I transitioned out of having my own company, if you will, although it still was because I was invested in this new company. And, but for the first time I had a partner. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this period of your life, this six years kind of phrased as stepping back from entrepreneurship, but it doesn't sound well, so much like you were. No, no, no that, that piece was still very much so entrepreneurial. Yeah, that, yeah. that piece was not me stepping back. That was me going from having a company in which it was just me and I was the only one leading to actually having partners and having investors. So that was a different kind of business, but still my business. Still, I was still a, an, an owner within the business and I was still building the business. That's different than what I did after that four years. Uh, I got married and I remember telling and anyone who has who has met a chef that was trained in France just think of Gordon Ramsay, like the, the, the pot throwing, the cursing like crazy. That's just the personality type. And I was getting married. And I remember sitting down with Jerry and saying, listen, no man is going to be comfortable listening to another man speak that way to his wife. Now, I'm fine with it because I know how to deal with you and you know how to deal with me and it doesn't bother me at all. But someone on the outside coming in, this is going to not work because if they're not used to a French trained chef, right? And uh, it and it didn't work. It did not work. And so one day it literally just blew up, and I had to make a decision. and And I chose my marriage without question. But all of a sudden, there was a a break where, for the first time, I wasn't an entrepreneur. And the question became. Do I want to immediately go back into owning my own business? Do I want to do that again? Or do I want to actually learn what it feels like to be not the person responsible for everyone's paycheck? There was just something appealing about thinking I could actually put my head on my pillow and go to sleep at night and not have to think about, will I get a call from the restaurant at one o'clock in the morning? And so there was something very appealing about the idea of being an employee versus an employer. The downside is, is I chose hotels and I chose to oversee special events and catering for the Viceroy Santa Monica, which was the most celebrity driven hotel in LA at the time. So I ended up putting myself in the exact same position but then as an employee, so I still had the same stress uh, as I did before. It was just a different kind of stress. I was still putting in the same 16, 18 hours on any given day. It's just now I was doing it for someone else instead of myself, which I wasn't sure about, but I still sort of went with it. I ended up moving to a Hilton property and I went over there as the director of sales and very soon thereafter was asked to be the general manager. And so then I have all these employees yet again, I'm managing an income statement, balance sheet, a profit and loss statement every month again. <laughs> but, but not and, for yourself. But yeah. not for myself. <laughs> and so for that six year period of time, I would not trade it for anything in the world because so much of how I manage now is different from how I managed when I first came in 
to being an entrepreneur because now I get to look at it from a team member's perspective because I was one. When we come back, I'll talk with Fawn about her inspiration for founding Uncle Nearest, the fastest growing independent whiskey business in the United States. Tell me about the inspiration for Uncle Nearest. Yeah, well, Uncle Nearest, that is what all of the folks in Lynchburg called him. And that is his family. Those are friends. That's the community. Everyone in the town of Lynchburg, where he made whiskey, where he taught a young orphan named Jack Daniel, the art of distilling, the art of making what we now know to be Tennessee whiskey. It's taking a traditional bourbon distillate and running it through sugar maple charcoal to filter it prior to it going in the barrel. So Tennessee whiskey, a lot of people don't know, is still a straight bourbon whiskey. But the only difference between what they do in Kentucky and what we do here in Tennessee is the process that Nearest Green taught. He is the first known African-American master distiller. And ironically, to this day, for a major brand, he remains the only one. And so this, this whole idea of Uncle Nearest really was that he was respected in that community. He was known as the best whiskey maker. And and to understand that Tennessee, prior to Prohibition, had more distilleries than Kentucky did. There, There was a huge distilling business here. So for him to be known as the best meant that what he was doing was was quite extraordinary. And so honoring him with Uncle Nearest was being able to say, this is what everyone called him. This is how everyone honored him. So in commemorating the first African-American on a spirit bottle ever, we want to call him what everyone called him. However, our distillery, 270 acres, is called Nearest Green Distillery. And the reason why that there is a difference is, is that we believe that if Nearest Green all those years ago were able to have his own distillery, he would not have used the moniker that people called him he would have used his own name. And so we built that distillery out, honoring him as if he would have built that himself. And, and so that's why we we have the, the difference between the name on the bottle and the name on the distillery. I love that that focus and that respect um, for one's identity and one, what even the language involved in it, right? That's, yes. that's the sign of respect. Um, for you, Fawn, which came first? So the wanting to start a spirits brand or the story? Oh, the story. The, yeah. the, the spirit brand was not a part of it. Number one, I didn't know anything about the whiskey business. I knew nothing about the spirit business, but I did know something about the storytelling business. And I knew that it could be a really exciting story to tell. And so I began diving into the story. And when I became, when I began uncovering this remarkable relationship between this young white orphan and this, this black distiller during a period of time where there wasn't really uh, any good relationships that we know of between whites and blacks specifically in the South. And to be able to, to tell that story to me was bigger than anything else. And so when I looked at it, it was a book, it was a movie, but here, here's the problem with both books and movies. Entertainment does not really go longer than a couple of generations. So my favorite film of all time is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Tracy Spencer, Sidney Poitier. I mean, but two generations from now, people aren't going to be watching that movie. 
when I went to go see Hidden Figures, I actually went with several of Mears Green's descendants. And we sat in that movie theater and cheering and, and high-fiving like everybody else did going to see the movie and crying during different parts. And after the movie was over, we were all in the vestibule area. And I said, this is how the movie has to be. This is the way it has to be because there really are two heroes. There's a, a black, brilliant distiller and his white pupil that somehow they manage to look at each other as equals. And, and so we have to be able to showcase that. And, and now, unfortunately, I found out the Kevin Costner role was actually made up. So that was a little bit of a bummer. But <laughs> nonetheless, at that time, I'm thinking there's these two heroes in this story and it's, and it's fabulous. It's amazing. Well, a couple of weeks later, I was thinking about the movie and what the names were of the people, the hidden figures, not Taraji P. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet, but what were the names of the characters they were actually playing? And I couldn't tell you one of their names. And so it became very clear that if we were going to cement this legacy of Nearest Green, if we were going to be able to bring it forward, we had to do so with something that was still going to be here 100, 200 years from now, because the story of Nears Green in Lynchburg, it was told until about 1978. All of Jack's descendants, Jack Daniel, when he was alive, his descendants, when they ran the distillery, his eldest descendant to run the distillery as president, uh, once he finished at the distillery, he still sat on the board of directors for the company. It wasn't until he died in 78 that the story disappeared before 79. And so the question was, how do we make sure that the story is not lost again, that it is not forgotten again. And the only way we were going to be able to do that is to do the same thing that Johnny Walker and Jack Daniel and Jim Beam did. We're still talking about their legacies because we're still seeing their bottles everywhere we go. And so then it became about cementing his legacy through something that would still be here two centuries from now. Wow. So, so the product that you ended up making the, the products, I should say you have, yeah. um, th is it three or more, um, different, different spirits at yes, this point? We have, we have three in our core line, but then we also have one that is sold only in the UK. And then we have another one that we, we sold when we first came out a few batches of it, but then we haven't put it back out into the marketplace, but our core is, is three bottles. That's amazing. So these three bottles are almost a byproduct of you wanting to tell a story. Yes. Tell me how you then um, a little more than three years ago now, um, and, and I'm sure there was time, you know, leading up to that and creating the business in, in creating the distillery. How did you build that into a business? Yeah, well, I mean, it, that piece of it, I knew how to do very easily. The question was learning the spirit side. And I was very fortunate that the very first day I was in Lynchburg doing research, Jack's eldest, currently eldest living descendant walked through the door and we had a, a conversation. We had a great conversation. And before she left, she shared with me that Jack's biographer biography, the book that I read that took me to, to Lynchburg, that the farm where he grew up, where Nearest Green was the master distiller, where all these things happened. We now know that distillery to be distillery number seven, but where all of this happened, that that farm was for sale. 313 acres sitting in the hills right above Lynchburg. And so then she put us with her cousin, who's a realtor, who was a realtor at the time. And we went, we, we purchased the house, the farm immediately. The house, I mean, 
The second story is still a time capsule. The, the owners of the property, they were afraid their daughter might play and fall off the balcony on the second floor. So they closed off the second floor completely. You still literally have the newspaper on the walls from October 10th and October 11th, 1898, where they insulated and then put wallpaper on, on top of it. You still have in Jack's room, someone was barrel stencil practicing. And you literally have, you know, painted barrel heads all over the walls that are still there. So we've now plexiglassed all, all those rooms in. But just the thought that there was this home that we could restore to be the way that it was when Jack grew up there and to restore this farm to be the way that it may have been when Nears Green was the, the master distiller there, that was pretty special. And so we purchased that and I decided to make that ground zero for the research. And I began bringing all of the research to that property. I, I pulled thousands of documents and original artifacts from the family, both families, and brought all of this stuff to, to that property from six different states because Nearest's family are in six different states. And so I was pulling documents from every single place where they were and pictures and, and photographs and, and that type of thing. And brought it all back to, to that house. And, and Sherry Moore, who was the realtor, she would come and, and she would look at this research room that I had built out where it was literally covered in artifacts. I mean, wall to wall, stacks and stacks of research everywhere. And I would, every time she'd come, I'd share with her what I learned about her family because she's Jack Daniels lineage. And she says to me one day, you know, I know you're doing a book. I know you're doing a movie. But if you ever decide to honor Nearest with a bottle, I will come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. And I didn't know at the time, but I later found out that she had been in the family business her whole life. She had retired from Jack Daniel Distillery from being there 31 years. And when she retired, she was the director of whiskey operations, hands down the most knowledgeable and the most experienced person in the Tennessee whiskey business, even now, the, the biggest master distillers in this in the Tennessee whiskey business, she either hired or trained. And, and so having her come out of retirement made sure from the very beginning that we would get it right. So as soon as we were ready to go into the marketplace, we began submitting our whiskey to every award competition because we were confident we would be able to take the double gold and the best in class and, and, and all of the top awards. And we did. We're the most awarded American whiskey, which includes bourbon of 2019, of 2020. Right now, as it stands in 2021, we're still holding that crown. And we just won Best Tennessee Whiskey from San Francisco World Spirit Awards, which is the creme de la creme of our industry. We won two double golds and at that competition. And, and we just kind of keep rolling. But the reason why our whiskey is so great is you have a descendant of Jack, who was the most knowledgeable in the Tennessee whiskey business, running the operations. And then I hired a fifth generation descendant of Nearest Green, Victoria Edie Butler, as our master blender. And her palate is phenomenal. The way that she blends, the way that she does her tastings are unlike anybody else in the industry right now because she's self-taught. And it's just her ability to pick out all of the right flavor notes, but also her ability to throw out the things that she doesn't love is, is, is great. 
So in our Inc. Magazine story about you, Fawn, um, one of the lines that stood out to me was not one of the most artful, but it just is, is so impressive. Uh, Weaver assembled an all-minority board and an all-female executive team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was that intentional from the get-go? Was that? No. Your, oh, wow. No. Here's a, here's the crazy part is it was actually the someone in the media that pointed out to me that my entire executive team were women. Because in my company, we don't have levels, meaning we don't look at each other as you're on this level and you're on this level. We so so I interacted with women and men all of the time. I wasn't thinking about the fact that all the men in my company reported into women. I it just hadn't crossed my mind. And I was I was describing all of my leaders to a member of the press. And I went through, you know, Sherry Moore, director of, of, of whiskey operations. Uh, Catherine Jerkins, she is our SVP of global sales and marketing. Victoria Edie Butler, she's our master blender. And the person said, I'm sorry, did, did you just describe all women? Is your entire executive team women? And I actually had to pause and think about it because I hadn't thought about it before then. And so I wasn't looking to build based on uh, putting together a team of all women. I mean, coming into the whiskey business, that would be crazy on the surface. It wouldn't make no sense. It was just, I was looking for the, the right people with the right heart and they were the ones. One of the things I've been talking with leaders about so much in recent weeks is, is what is, what is company culture anyway? Like what, yeah. what can we retain when we're having our virtual meetings? You know, is, is it just the tone of, of our conversations? Is it something else? I mean, it's gotta be beyond just a physical thing at this point, right? So what do you think about that? Um, and what, what is your company culture like, and has it been the same this year or, or is it, is it shifting and how can you kind of control that as a leader? Yeah. Our company culture has not changed. It has been family driven, family oriented and purpose driven from day one. We do not hire people who want to come in for, to, to just make money or to advance their career. We're looking for those people who want to be side by side with us and building this legacy brand and, and, and really cementing the legacy of nearest green. And so what we don't look at ourselves as a whiskey company. We look at ourselves as a legacy building company that just happens to be using whiskey because that is whose legacy we're cementing. And so I think internally, the nucleus of our company, the ethos of our company has always been very clear. And early on, I began writing company principles for us. And then I sent that out to all of our team members, not just leaders, to all of our team members at that time. And this was years, years ago. And I asked for them to tell me which of the company principles that I had laid out should stay and to add the ones that they thought should be there. And when it was all said and done, I think only maybe two or three of the original 10 that I came up with remained and the, the rest of it was from our, our team members. So our guiding principles have been very clear from early on. And our very first one is we do it with excellence or we don't do it at all. And our number three is every day we pound the rock. And so if you come into my company, actually, if you, <laughs> I don't know if you can see this, but all of our, all of our, our journals that we do our daily tasking in, they all say pound the rock because it's not that one, you know, that one hit that when someone is chiseling a rock, that one hit that makes it split. It's the 101 hits that came before that 102nd one. 
And so we have this mentality of every day we pound the rock. But I think one of the reasons we've done such a great job in putting the right team together is I then took those company principles, those 10, and I created corresponding hiring principles. So every single, every single guiding principle has a hiring principle and each one is a checkbox. So any VP in my company who is looking at hiring for a particular market, they don't send the final interviews to me until they have people that have that literally check off every single one of those hiring principles. And I will keep a position open and I've done this. I will keep a position open for a year, two years before I fill it with the wrong person. And so we've had really great success. Our company culture is a culture of confidence. If you're not confident, let me tell you, you will not survive at Uncle Nearest. Do not come, do not knock on the door, do not send your resume. We are, one of the reasons why we are so close and we are so family oriented is because we are authentically ourselves. And the only way you can have an entire company that are authentically themselves is that you have created a culture of confidence where people can actually say what they mean and mean what they say and not have to worry about retaliation, not have to worry about people being upset with them. We don't have, I mean, we're super, super respectful of one another, but we're not tying stuff in bows. We are not sugarcoating things for each other because the greatest respect I believe we can give a human being is not to wrap something up in a bow. It's to tell the truth. And in our company, we do that. So that they, I call it a culture of confidence, but that really just means that if you aren't sure of yourself, if you are an insecure person, find another company. Mine won't work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that sort of direct communication only works though, when you always assume the best about other people and the Absolutely. people around you. Yes. Yeah. And when you're respectful, because you can say what's on your mind, but do so with a level of respect that people understand this isn't an attack. This is just their perception. And we we are very honest and very truthful with one another. I literally, we use Slack and there is literally a Slack channel for my, my executives that says, call Fawn on her shit. That's literally a Slack channel, right? And so making sure that that my team members, I'm not the one who is being super honest with them, but they don't have the ability to do that in return. This has to be a two-way street. And so if I am doing something that my team members don't like, they need to be able to address it and they shouldn't have to wrap it in a bow to address it. They need to be able to be honest and, and, uh, and that's what works for us. I'm not trying to change anyone else's company culture. I just know what works in, in my company. Absolutely. And I, I imagine you get approached uh, a lot these days for, for advice from <laughs> other entrepreneurs. Um, what's, what's the most common kind of piece of advice you're either asked for or give or, or that you give? And, um, and what's your favorite kind of piece to share? Yeah, I can tell you what I share most on social media. It's sure. two hashtags, dream bigger, fail harder. And, and the two, I believe, go hand in hand. To dream bigger, there's so many people, and especially women and minorities, we are the worst at this, is putting lids on ourselves, putting caps on ourselves. There is a, a great, just maybe a minute and a half video that's really old, black and white on YouTube, and it's of a scientist. And he has put fleas in a jar. And he closes this jar with this glass lid, and these fleas just keep bouncing up, you know, fleas like boing, 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 keep bouncing at the lid. And after a few days, he takes the lid off. And the fleas, although they could easily jump out, 
they have now capped themselves at right beneath the lid so that they don't hit the lid. And the crazy part about that video is not only did the fleas that experience banging their head on the top of the lid, not only would they not jump any higher than the lid, their offspring didn't either. And I think that for a lot of people of color, a lot of women in the industries that you're in and the jobs that they're in, the lid is not there anymore. We just think it is. And so we don't have the confidence that we need to jump, right? We limit ourselves. And, and so that dream bigger is basically saying, just take the reins off, take the limits off. Whatever is your biggest idea, that idea that is so big, you can't do it by yourself. You need God, the universe, all the people around you. That's the idea, the big idea. And so it's dream bigger. And then the second piece of that is, is fail harder. There is, I, I actually heard this the other day and it, it I think it, it encapsulates this, this concept really well, which is the, the owner of Spanx, Sarah Blakely, she would talk about how every day when she and her brother would get home from school, her father would not, their father would not ask them about their success. He'd say, where did you fail? And he would cheer them on for failing because what that said is they were trying. If you're never failing, then you're never trying to go beyond what you have capped your abilities to be. And so that fail harder mantra, I live by it. That means you cannot be afraid to fail. Or if I shouldn't say that, you can be afraid to fail. You just can't allow that fear to dictate what you do. And, and so that's the fail harder piece. So those are, those are always my two biggest pieces of advice. Thank you so much, Fawn Weaver, for joining us today. Thank you, Christine. It was my pleasure. talking with Fawn, I think what I'll never forget is that it's so remarkable that as a serial entrepreneur, when founding Uncle Nearest, she didn't initially set out to create a company at all. Fawn was trying to tell a story, and that continues to be the mission that drives her company. She set out to cement an important legacy. She asked the questions, how do we make sure that story is not lost again, that it is not forgotten again? And she found the best, clearest way to do that was not to make a film or to write a book, but to create a product that would honor the legacy of Black American distilling and that story of Nearest Green in Lynchburg. Fawn isn't just impressive as a founder and as a storyteller. She's also impressive as a leader who is so self-aware she's built her company around her leadership style. She calls it a culture of confidence. That's of course not a universal that would work for everyone, but Fawn's level of self-awareness sure would. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please follow What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. If you have an idea for a founder you'd love to hear about, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. 
Our producer and whiskey tester is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.